for Thrash and Raid, we just want to continue to just make that new, like right now, I mean, we're still small business, but we're seeing waves um, unlike most people that start a skateboard company, right? It takes a lot of years for them to be noticed in, in the skate industry. And, and I feel like because of our active service and what we're doing, we're, we're making um, much bigger ripples in that. And so our goal is to be competing with these top skate companies that everyone knows about and you see them in, in all the different skate shops. We want to be in every skate shop across uh, the United States. And we want to be the prime choice. We have a hashtag, America Skateboard Company. We want to be America Skateboard Company that has the values that most veterans in law enforcement have and have the values that want to serve others and protect others and making a, a meaningful difference, right? a positive difference. We want to be that skate company that promotes that. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. As members of the first responder and military communities, we need to be planning today for our transition from these careers. Because unfortunately, as many have experienced, these careers can tell us the ride is over before we're ready for it to be done. My name is Paul Pantani and I've spent the past 30 years in law enforcement, working in various assignments and promoting through the ranks of leadership. With the help of my guests, who like you are either former or current military members or first responders, the goal of this podcast is to provide you with information to help you in your planning. But just as important, we can't forget to take care of ourselves today. So I'm also going to have guests who are going to talk about how to be more physically and mentally fit. Before we get into this week's guest, I need a few favors because I can't grow this without your help. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the podcast. I also need your assistance getting the word out. If you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word to anyone you think will enjoy it also. But what I need the most is your feedback and input. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, and any suggestions you have for guest selection. Please go to the podcast webpage at transitiondrillpodcast.com and send me a direct message. Also, if you'd leave me a rating and any comments on iTunes, I would truly appreciate it. Thank you. Joining me in this episode is Benji Manabog. Benji served 15 years in the Marine Corps as a Raider and as a member of MARSOC. He had to cut his career short because caring for his wife's health and their family was more important to him. But Benji's life growing up would definitely not be what someone would point to as an indicator for success in the military, let alone the business world. But today, he has a master's degree from USC's Marshall School of Business, and he's a CEO of Thrash and Raid, a skateboard and apparel company. In addition to that, he founded the nonprofit organization Six Feet Above to connect and support veterans and service members through skateboarding. Benji has an interesting story to say the least, and it was a pleasure to sit, talk, and get to know him better. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's get into episode 28. Talk to me about skateboarding. Did you go looking for it as a kid or did it come to you natural or come looking for you? It, it came looking for me. Um, I didn't start skateboarding until I was 10 years old and it was right. It was right at my 10, uh, 10 year birthday. So <laughs> I, I've told this story before. Um, and I always hate telling it now just because, well, I'll get into that in a minute. My dad said he was going to pick me up on my 10th birthday, but he didn't, he didn't show up. And, uh, it's, it was, it was a time when I hadn't seen my dad in a long time. My parents had split several years ago. I was living with other family members and then I, I was really looking forward to seeing him. And so it was a huge letdown when I was waiting outside, hoping that he'd show up. And then, you know, the time came, the time went hours went by. My mom remembers looking outside the window and seeing me just devastated, hoping that he would still show. And he never did. 
And what ended up happening is my uncle came that night and he brought me a helmet and some elbow pads, knee pads, all that. And I remember like, he, he came in the door. He'd never even walked inside. He just was like, Hey, happy birthday. I got these for you. Happy birthday. And I remember thinking like, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. What am I going to do with this? <laughs> this is lame, right? I don't, I don't have anything else to use for these. Right. And he goes, well, you're going to need this to go with those. And it was a skateboard. And so right, right at that moment, I was like, man, this is awesome. It's just what I needed just to get my mind off of everything and go outside. And ever since then, that's what, um, you know, that's what really is like one of the first positive things during that really rough time. And the reason why I say I, I don't like telling that story now is because I recently in the last year reconnected with my dad and we reconciled a lot of the, a lot of the things that he did. And so I don't want to make it seem like he's this terrible person because there was a lot of things, you know, as a kid, you go through a lot of, you know, trauma and, and neglect and abandonment. Or if you, if you do go through those things, you don't understand why. And as a kid, you don't always see the big picture. And so when I reconciled with my dad, I was able to understand a lot of the reasons why a lot of those things happened. I'm not saying it was right. And he's, he still says it's not right. But I, I feel more empathetic about it, I guess. The one advantage we all have in looking back on our experience as a parent once we're older is every one of us as a parent makes yeah. mistakes yeah. and every one of us would love to go back and change something. And oh, so yeah. I just think it's cool that, you know, you and your dad have been able to get back together and kind of put the past in the past. And, and you almost have to, as the kid experiencing that kind of say, okay, Hey, here's our new dividing line. Let's just move forward from here. Exactly. And, and what's, what's great is I didn't wait until it was too late to reconcile. I still have hopefully many more years with my dad to, to get to know him and to build that relationship and to make up for that lost time that I didn't have as a kid. How old were you when they split up? I was uh, seven when they split. Yeah. And do you come from a big family, <clears throat> brothers, sisters? Oh yeah. I had, uh, so my mom and dad, you know, there, there's four of us, uh, you know, my, my brother and two sisters. And then I, I also have two other siblings from my dad and then another sibling from my mom, um, after a remarriage. And, and so we, I did have a big family. However, I didn't spend a lot of time with that family because a lot of us were split up. We got divided during the, um, during the divorce, it was kind of a nasty divorce. And, uh, four of us ended up living with, uh, my grandma at the time in East LA. And I went from having pretty much everything I could ever want to living in a small apartment in a hallway with a couple, you know, my cousins, my aunt and my grandma and all my siblings. Right. And so they didn't have enough room for us there. So we were kind of just jam packed in this little apartment in Monterey park. And I just remember, um, you know, wishing and hoping that I could just have a normal family life again. And so when I finally did get uh, a chance to live with my mom again, a couple years later, I didn't, I didn't initially live with them right away. It was, they took my sisters first. So it was just me and my brother. And then finally I came over there, but then my sister moved out and then I moved out. And then, you know, my, my other little sister, she moved out early. I think all of us left the house before like the, around the age 15, 16. Your mom remarried and that's when you moved back with her? No, she, she was a single parent, um, but she was getting her, her life together. Uh, she, you know, was on the welfare system. 
uh, went to night school to get a better job. I think at the time she was working at, you know, Albertsons or something as a cashier, went to night school to become a, a dental assistant. And then after having a better job, got off welfare and then, you know, tried to take care of us. The issue was she was working full time and ended up, um, we ended up becoming those latchkey kids, right? You know, so just the very independent going out and doing our own thing, which, which caused a lot of trouble. So where would you consider hometown for you? Where'd you grow up the most at Monterey park? No, I'd say, I'd say the longest period of my life was more, uh, Santa Clarita, uh, it's, uh, Northern LA County. For those listening, it's up by magic mountain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right near magic mountain. Yeah. Uh, is that where you went to high school? Yes, I did. I went to a continuation school there. So I'm um, inferring from that kind of started getting into some trouble. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, it was right around that time, you know, I was 10 years old and I was um, at home with my, with my mom again. And because I was that latchkey kid being able to do whatever I wanted, um, I just hung around the, the wrong crowd, but I was, I was searching for something. I was seeking that, that, that guidance and that positive mentorship. And I wasn't getting it from any of the male role males in my life. And it, you know, it caused me to get in trouble at school. I was always, you know, everyone was like, Oh, he's the class clown, but I was more than a class clown. I was the, I was the, the student that teachers were like, I just want this kid out of here. And so I was constantly getting uh, suspended, expelled and moving from school to school. And that's what caused me to, you know, the, the final straw was you're not coming back to the school. You have to go to a continuation school because my grades were so bad. I had, I mean, just for context, my senior year, I still had ninth grade credits. Were you, do you think looking back on it, you were just looking for attention? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, looking back, a lot of it stems from that feeling of abandonment and neglect and, you know, just having, having, you know, multiple, you know, brothers and sisters, you're, you're seeking attention. And I didn't have my parents there and my grandma, she's, she was older and she's trying to do her own thing. My aunt, she was working, she's doing her own thing and we didn't really have anybody. So we're seeking, you know, to just to have any sort of attention. So even negative attention was sometimes good attention, but, um, you know, being that, that kind of person that liked to make people smile and laugh and entertain, I just didn't know the right time and place to do it. <laughs> right. And so, and I didn't know the right ways to make people laugh and, and smile and entertain. Cause I realized that if I did something so off the wall and so, um, just, you know, out there, like, for example, I mean, there was a time when I was in eighth grade and someone's like, Oh, the bus is coming. And I was like, well, I'm going to go streaking and I'll run by naked. And so all everyone will see me running by <laughs> and I'll just be this kid running by naked. And, um, of course everyone got to school, told everybody what happened. The rumor spread, went around school and the teachers ended up, you know, calling my parents like, did you know your son was running naked down the street, you know, when the bus came, but, um, so things like that. So nothing malicious, <clears throat> just cantankerous. Yes. Yeah, I would say it was nothing like I wasn't trying to put any harm on anybody at that point. Um, and I guess later in, in my years when I became a teenager and I was um, getting involved in the punk rock scene, got more heavily involved in drugs, and I was living with my uncle at the time who was a meth addict. And at that point is when it came to, it went from just trying to make people laugh to let's go 
steal stuff and let's let's you know <laughs> let's get into a lot more trouble let's get into fights let's go do these things that were more of a malicious intent vice just being a goofball do you think that it was still driven by a new group of friends maybe a little bit more problematic so but you were still looking for their validation and their attention i, I was but at the same time i found i found a sense of belonging in that group because it was like my whole life, I was always being told, you know, you're odd, you're weird, you're, you know, you're never going to make it in life. Like, this is what you should do. This is what you have to do. This is what's expected of you to do. And I didn't want to do those things, right? And so when I found this group of misfits, these, these punk rockers, it was like, it was okay to be that misfit. It was okay to be different. It was okay to rebel and think differently and all that. And so I was like, that's where I belong. But the problem is, the more rebellious and the more you say F you to authority, the cooler you are. Right. And so I looked up to people that did, you know, hated the cops and, and stole things. And, you know, if, if there was a riot at a punk rock show, it was cool to be part of that riot. And it was like bragging rights to say, Oh yeah, I was part of this. And I smashed this window and I did this and that, and, you know, and, and it was like, you wanted to be part of that. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, what a knucklehead, right? <laughs> I, I, w I wish I, I would be the one beating up that kid, you know, if I could go back. But, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I was just, I just wanted to feel like I actually belonged. I'm definitely not trying to make excuses. We, we're all responsible for our actions, but it sounds to me more like your driving force wasn't necessarily, um, wanting to be the person to get in trouble it was more of the environment drove you to get into trouble yeah exactly i wasn't i definitely wasn't seeking trouble and i never wanted to uh um you know go to prison or or you know end up and i think that's what ended up flipping my life around was when i saw the consequences actually start happening for a long time for years and years yeah i was getting kicked out of school and things like that. To me, that didn't matter. That was a slap on the wrist, in my opinion, because when I went to continuation school, that meant I didn't have to go to school as many hours as all the rest of the kids. It's kind of weird how it's like, you know, if, if you're a normal student and, you know, you excel in school, you go to school from whatever, seven in the morning to 3 p.m. or whatever it is. And for me, you know, from 10th grade on, it was like, go to, go to this continuation school at eight and you're out of there by 10. And so I'm only there for two hours and that gave me the rest of the time to be on the streets and do what I wanted, which seemed extremely odd given the fact that <laughs> all these, all these people that are going to that school are a bunch of misfits and troublemakers. And then you're giving them all the time to, to roam the streets. And so uh, I personally enjoyed it back then because I got to skate and focus on music and the things that I liked and I thought were important at the time. And yet, you know, in hindsight, kind of wasted a lot of years, <laughs> right? I, I look back at what I did in the military and I say, man, I was very athletic and I was very, you know, I, I, I wish I had the, and I see my kids playing baseball and doing these things. And I'm like, man, I, that would have been so awesome just to, you know, have that drive to put my talents towards those things, the productive things. But again, it, it's not that I, I look, I look back on that and I don't say, oh, I regret this so much to where, you know, I waste, you know, my whole life's ruined. Obviously it's not. i I, I use those as ways, as teaching tools for my kids. And, I, and I, I don't hide anything from my kids. I let them know about the drugs I did. And I let them know about the choices I made and the consequences that, that had happened. And so once I started seeing the consequences actually happening, that's when something triggered in my brain. I was like, oh man, people are overdosing. 
people are going to prison. People are, there, there's real world consequences here, right? Right. It's, it's not just, it's not just friendly, you know, light trash can on fire. We all laugh. It's like, Hey, people are drowning in their own vomit underneath a bridge. Cause they're, they're so screwed up. Right. And, um, I, I didn't want that to happen to me. At looking back on it during that time period in your life, did you have anybody who could be deemed looking back mm-hmm. a mentor, somebody who was that voice just kind of telling you, Hey, maybe stop or, or maybe kind of pull yourself out of this hole that you're going down, but maybe you didn't realize it at the time. Yes. And I, I did have, I mean, you know, my, my mom, God bless her. Cause she, she was that one person that was encouraging despite all the terrible stuff. I mean, I straight up, I remember it wasn't the day I left. It wasn't the day I ran away and ended up later on moving in with my uncle. But I just remember this one moment where I just like gave her the bird, like just right in her face. And I was like, fuck you, mom. And, and it, and it's like, she did all this hard work, raising the four kids on her own and doing all this stuff. And I didn't appreciate it at the time. In my mind, I was just like, I I don't have my dad there. I hated my dad. My mom was gone. And then she'd come home angry because obviously we're a bunch of hooligans and the house is destroyed (laughs) and, you know, we're doing all this stuff. And, and so, um, and, and my mom was going through so much stress that she was kind of abusive in a way. Um, there was a lot of verbal and physical altercations like you know with her and my sister where they were fist fighting and then they they it was like almost like you know the bell would ring and they'd take a break and they'd go and grab like their own weapons and i remember like you know her grabbing the the thing from the uh you know that holds a paper towel roll and then my sister grabbing something else and then they come back and they're hitting each other and i remember you know her grabbing my sister by the hair and they're pulling her up the stairs and and i just there was days where i just would leave the house like things like that would start happening and i would leave the house and i would go to this elementary school nearby and i would climb on the roof i'd climb the pipe of this elementary school and i would sit on the roof and i would just cry and i would just want to be alone and i would just be like man i just this sucks like life sucks right and it sucks so bad at home and i'd i'd, I'd constantly run away like that by saying you know let me take the i'm gonna take the trash out and then i go to the trash can take the trash out and then i just leave, keep going and then just leave and so Um, but I, but I look back even through all that stuff, whenever I'd screw up, you know, I had teachers tell my mom, your son will never amount to anything in life. And they were right. If I continue that path. Right. And I, but when they told my mom that I remember my mom looking at me later and saying, don't listen to them. Like you are special. You are creative. You are, you just don't know how to like channel that and focus it. Right. And she's like, but you are special. You are going to make a difference if you choose to do the right thing. She's like, that's all you got to do. And I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, <laughs> I was <just> like, <laughs> yeah, like whatever mom, you know, but I, so I look back and say, I'm 15. I know everything in the world. I, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I really thought I did about, about everything, politics, about, <laughs> oh my gosh, I was such an idiot. And because I was learning from punk rock music of like how the world worked. And of course, all they're talking about is how, you know, how everything sucks and F this and F that. And I'm just like, yeah, they're right. You know, I'm angry. They're angry. You know? And so, uh, but she is. And then one of my teachers at my continuation school, um, during my senior year. And that's, that was during the time I was starting to, uh, change my life when I turned 18. But he was someone that was always telling me, you know, cause I'd be in his class. Uh, he taught history and I was really into history. I loved learning. Like that was the one subject I was like, I love history. I love learning about this. And I would, 
really put a lot of effort into everything we did. And he would tell me, he's like, if you just put this effort into all applications of your life, like imagine what you do. And, and he, he even took the time that he found out that my band was playing at the show in Hollywood because my band would play all the time out there in North Hollywood. And he drove out on a Saturday to watch my band play. And I was all drunk and high on meth. And I'm just like, Oh crap. Like Jeff's here. You know, <laughs> I was like, you know, my teacher's here, but you know, he was someone that was really encouraging. And, um, you know, I, I remember once I did turn my life around and I, I remember bringing my mom to that last, it was like the final, you know, like a parent teacher night or something like that. And it was right before graduation. I remember bringing my mom there and he knew that I didn't live with my mom. I lived with my uncle and I, I brought my mom and my stepdad. I even said, you know, I'm going to bring my stepdad, even though I hated him. <laughs> but, but at the time I, I kind of reconciled with him. And I remember I, uh, I brought them in and the moment he saw me walk in with my mom, he started crying. Like that teacher started crying and he was just like, I I'm sorry. And my mom was like, what the hell's going on? And he's like, I I'm just sorry because I've seen where, your son was and then seeing him today with you is just it's night and day so i look back and say you know he was someone that i i really um wanted to make proud and i was happy that i did that's cool that he saw something in you and and if nothing more just was that little prodding of encouragement yeah you know not try to beat you over the head almost you know to where it pushes you away but just enough to kind of be that subtle voice keeping you going. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> I feel sorry for a lot of teachers, you know, I, or I, not sorry, but I feel empathetic, right? Because, you know, you see the videos today and you see how students act towards the teachers and they're in the room and they're like, you just can't get, can't get control sometimes. And I feel like I was that instigator. I was that kid that was just like, you know, I bet you teachers just wanted nothing more than to just grab me and just like, <laughs> give me a few, you know, just, just punch me and, and just, you know, send me out the way and be like, if there's a button to delete this kid, like I will push that button in a heartbeat. Right? They're looking at their <laughs> class roster for the coming year. Like, oh, yeah, I got him. And, and it sucks <laughs> because I ruined like, the reputation of my family because my sister was, I mean, she, she wasn't that big of a knucklehead. She did pretty well. Uh, she, we ended up going to different schools. she, she ended up um, living in Eagle Rock for most of her life in Eagle Rock, California. But my little sister, she was at home, you know, and she had some of the same teachers I did, like in elementary school and, and middle school. And I remember when they'd see her name, she's like, oh, great. Another Manabog. Like, <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm a good kid. Well, it turns out she wasn't a good kid either. <laughs> she, she got arrested for stealing and all sorts of stuff too. But um, <laughs> she had a lot to live up to. She did. She did. <laughs> So you talked about music. How, where did music come from? Yeah. So music started, uh, or my love for music started once. And it's really interesting. I got introduced to punk rock through a Mormon family, or it's not the family that introduced it to me, but there was a, a family down the street and they were Mormon. And there was one like kid in the group, one rebellious kid in the, in the family. His name was Danny and, and he liked skateboarding. And so I was like, Oh, cool. I skateboard. And we skated and he was a little bit older than me and he listened to punk rock. And he's like, oh, you got to check this out. And he's showing me different bands. He's showing me stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah. And, and then he's, and I'm watching these punk uh, or these skate videos and they would have punk rock in those videos. And I'm like, okay, this is my music. It's, it's raw. It's like, these guys are skating and they're hardcore and they're, you know, they're just, you know, eating crap. And that's when right before Jackass came out, 
uh, Johnny Knoxville was in these videos called Big Brother. And in those videos, I remember they were doing those stupid stuff and whatever. And I was like, oh, we could do that. I'm an idiot too. So we were like jumping off of roofs and stuff. This, yeah, like before Jackass started. And then, and then, you know, and so getting into music that way, it just, it was like, I just wanted that like raw, aggressive energy type of, you know, music. And, and of course, you know, I hated on all the other mainstream stuff, right? Because that was what, what was cool to do. Um, but if you're in the, in the punk rock scene, it's like almost like every punk has a band at some point, right? And most most non-successful, right? So I was like, yeah, let's start a band. I started playing guitar and I, I met up with a bunch of, you know, buddies that were like, let's play and we sucked. But then we started getting pretty good and we started playing shows around, you know, Hollywood and we went up to San Francisco to even play. And this yeah. is all while you're in high school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I'd say most of the time I wasn't in school. I was you were of high school age. I was of high school age, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because most most days you could find me or any of my friends and a lot of, like the drummer in my band, he was in his 20s already. He was, so we didn't have to worry about who's going to buy us alcohol. Well, he would, or we'd steal it, right? There was, oh, I might get into that later, but <laughs> <laughs> there was things we did. And I don't know if I want to describe how I did it because I don't know if any kids are listening and be like, oh, that's a good way to steal without getting caught. But it was... Um, Trust me, you're not going to be teaching him anything. Yeah. You don't already know. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, but that's that's kind of what got me into music. And then uh, I'd say music was another positive thing in my life as far as, you know, it taught me, you know, the patience and to, to understand failure. Same thing with skateboarding. I, under, I understood how to work hard at something to get better at something. And I think because my mentality was I want to be really good at this and I want to succeed at this. And some of my friends they were like, I'm just doing this and I want to get drunk and I want to, you know, just hang out at the, at these clubs that we're playing at. I think that's when I started noticing, I think I have more drive than some of these guys. And I wouldn't say all of them. I, I have a buddy named Wyatt. I still talk to you to this day. He skates, amazing guy. And I think he was kind of in that, that same category as me where he, I felt he was more driven in life and he's overcome a tremendous amount of adversity as well. So I wouldn't say all my friends were of that same mindset, but most of them were. So for you, it was actually something that you were taking seriously and wanted everybody else in the, the band to take it seriously. Yeah. Cause I didn't want to just be like, you know, I, cause I looked at my future and said, cause I remember my mom telling me there was times we'd drive, you know, we'd be in LA and we'd see people on the corner begging for, you know, money and this and that. And she's like, you don't want to be that guy, but the way you're heading, like you're going to be that guy. Right. <clears throat> And ironically, I started hanging out with those guys <laughs> when I was, you know, in that high school age and we were under bridges drinking with these homeless guys. And, and I think hanging around them and hanging around kind of like the scumbags of the earth, right? I was like starting to realize, I'm like, maybe I don't want to be part of this crowd. Like I enjoy it because it's fun and rebellious. But then, then I started like seeing myself in them. I was like, that's going to be me in 10, 20, 30 years if... I continue what I'm doing. So I was like, I need to find a way to not be that. Well, what are these other bands doing that are successful? And they're still kind of in that scumbag life. They're still enjoying <laughs> the fun, but they're also, you know, semi-successful. So I was like, well, I'll just take music seriously or I'll take skateboarding seriously. And then maybe that will propel me to get there. Well, neither worked out, but <laughs> it would be interesting to talk to somebody who's in a, a well-known band because I would imagine you come in with that, punk rock mentality, whatever that anti-authority mentality, but all of a sudden you sign the record deal and the people paying you money go, 
we need three more albums out of you. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it needs to get real serious. Oh, oh yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough and, and grateful enough to be friends with some people that I looked up to when I was uh, a kid and had no idea that they were a lot different than I imagined them. And, you know, one of them being CJ Ramone from the Ramones, he was the a bass player in the Ramones and he was a prior Marine and his story is actually very unique. He actually went UA from the Marine Corps to join the Ramones, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he's, his mentality is very different today. And it, even still back then after he'd already, you know, been in the Ramones and they're successful, obviously, but he, he talks about just, you know, that drive and that passion that he had and that, you know, his hard work ethic got him to where he is. And he understood that if I, you know, continue to make terrible choices, there's consequences to it. Right. And you see the careers of these, you know, rock stars and musicians and all these other folks that, um, get just wrapped up in the, the crazy lifestyle, their careers tank. And so I think people that see that long-term vision and say, I don't want that. I don't want to see like how I did. I saw, you know, myself in those, in those homeless guys. And I was like, I don't want to be like that. And I, I didn't want to be like some of my friends that, you know, went to prison. I was like, I don't want to do that. Or even my uncle that I lived with, who was a meth addict. I love him. And I even texted him last night because he, uh, it was my birthday a few days ago and he, he finally belated. Oh, thank you. He, he wished me a happy birthday. And, and I, I always talk about him, how, you know, I lived with this meth addict and all this stuff. And he's still struggling to this day with, I don't know if it, if he's struggling with addiction, but he's struggling with other health issues that are probably consequences of that. And so, you know, whenever I talk to him, I just, you know, I, I, I think, man, your life was, there's so many things you wasted and things that choices that you made, it just, ruined your life. And he understands that. And I know now he's living with a lot of that regret and I didn't want to be that way. I didn't want to, I, and I'm, I'm grateful that, that I had the, the foresight to say, um, I'm not going to be that way. Looking back at that time in your life, you say that you, you saw that you didn't want to be this way in your future, but what would, if you could go back then, what were you seeing for your future? Well, to be honest, it was like, I didn't see, I wasn't sure. I, I just knew I didn't want to, I knew what I didn't want to be. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Right. And I think a lot of us, you know, I experienced that same thing coming out of the military. It's like, I know what I did. (laughs) And I was like, now I'm like, Oh crap. You know, it's like, I know I got to do something. And so when I was 18, I'm trying to figure it out. I just was like, well, prior to 18 and my punk rock phase, military was never an option. In fact, I was like anti-military. I remember uh, that recruiter coming to the continuation school and he's trying to pitch the Marine Corps and he's trying to pitch, you know, like, Hey, you know, travel and adventure, free college, just that. And I was like, this is the stupidest presentation. I was like, called him out in front of the class. And then that guy just, I remember he gave me this look like he just wanted to kill me, you know? And I was just like, F you, you know, like Iraq had just kicked off and I was like, Oh, your guys are fighting for oil and, you know, killing babies and all this stuff. I was just that little shit, you know? <laughs> and he was just looking at me like, I just want to kill this kid. One too many dead Kennedy songs. <laughs> exactly. I think I was probably wearing a dead Kennedy shirt. But, and then, so I was like, you know, I, I was, I never thought I'd do that. But then one day, I don't know. It's just like something clicked where I don't don't know. I just saw people, I I think it was a combination of things. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but I saw people that had joined and come back and their lives were totally different. I was like, man, that guy used to be this way. Now look at him. 
And then I, these I, were friends of yours. They weren't friends, but they were like friends of friends. And, and there were people that I knew, like I'd saw, see him in high school and I'm like, Oh, that guy's a goober, you know, whatever. And then he joined the army. He was a few years older. And then he came back and he's like, Oh, I just got back from Iraq, whatever. And I'm like, damn, that guy looks tough. And that guy's like, he's sharp, you know? And he's, you know, he's, he just looks like a stud and, you know, and people were admiring him and people were like, man, this guy's like, you know, legit. And, uh, I just remember seeing that, that, uh, that Navy SEAL commercial where it was like God's Max playing and it's like, don't, 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 don't. And it's got the boats and, and I was like, that's badass. And I remember I, I walked into the Navy recruiter, you know, I weighed like 117 pounds. I'm like this meth addict looking kid. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, Hey, I saw this commercial, you know, it's, I want to do that. Yeah. And I was like, that looks cool. And he's like, yeah, probably not. <laughs> he's like, let me show you what else we got. And he's like, here, take this ASVAB test too. scored like shit. Like I, I, it was ter I did terrible on it. And especially the math portion. Cause I just was not doing never, well. never, math class. never yeah and so they're like yeah you don't really qualify for anything besides like you're, well one you're gonna have to retake this but if you end up doing qualifying for qualifying we're guessing this is probably the range you're gonna qualify at and so these are the jobs we think are available and i'm looking at them it's like bosun's mate and like <laughs> you know i'm just gonna be painting the ship all day and i'm like this sucks and so I, I left with my head down like oh man like there goes my dream of being you know charlie sheen or something right <laughs> and so as I'm leaving the Marine Corps recruiters standing there and ironically, it's that same guy <laughs> that I told like his presentation was the worst. He's like, Hey, look, where are you coming from? And I'm like, Oh, Navy, whatever. And he's like, come in here. Let me tell you, you know, let me show you what the Marine Corps has. And then he didn't remember you, did he? No, he didn't know. I told him <laughs> later on, I was like, Hey, I don't know if you remember, but a year ago. And he's like, Oh, okay. You know, but uh, he's like, I'm glad you're here now. But, um, you know, I didn't know what the Marine Corps did. I just thought the Marine Corps was infantry. I was like, I didn't know there were jobs in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Like, I just want to like be a Marine, you know, like shoot and fight bad guys or something. And, um, and so, you know, when, when he saw how <laughs> the predicament that I was in, he's like, okay, one, uh, you're an addict. So we got to clean you up. The other thing is we got to get your weight up. We got to get you like physically ready. And then mentally too, let me help you like come in here. Let me help you graduate. So get your packet of work and all the stuff you got to do. As soon as you're done with school, instead of 10 AM, you grab your skateboard and do whatever, come to the recruiting office and do your homework here. And then we'll, we'll do a, you know, workout routine and all that. And so that's what I did for like six months. I just every day would come back and I'm, I don't know how it's possible, but I went from having ninth grade credits to graduating. Actually, I, I even graduated a couple weeks early because at that continuation school, as long as you finish these packets and you do all the work you need to, you could graduate earlier than, than you uh, are supposed to. So I actually graduated earlier because I was just so driven to become a Marine and I saw the reward. Like I saw that, okay, I'm not going to drink as much. <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, I'm not going to do, I, I, I it took me a while to quit drugs, but I was like, I'm, I'm going to stop using drugs. And I saw how I was gaining weight and I started working out and I was like, looking good. And girls were like, Hey, he's looking good. <laughs> and so I was like, Hey, this is nice. Like changing my lifestyle is like really making a difference. And so that really drove me to just be this new person. Speaking of your addiction, did you struggle with getting off of it or was it fairly easy to kind of step away from it? I struggled for a while, but it was, it was a lot easier because I had friends that, um, like Wyatt, like my, my buddy that I talked about, like that he, 
he was always against it. And in secret, I never, I never would tell him that I was doing it because the singer in our band, Marvin, he was like always just always high or always on something. And I remember someone asked him one time, they're like, Marvin, do you like drugs or alcohol better? And he's like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I was, and in fact, his nickname was Marvin drugs. And I remember he was like, I don't want you to be like Marvin. Right. And, and I remember I even started trying to, I was smoking cigarettes because all my friends were smoking cigarettes. And he's like, my buddy, why grab the cigarette? He's like, no, you're not going to smoke. I was like, well, you smoke. He's like, yeah, because I'm an idiot. You're not going to smoke. And so I had, I had friends like that. And then my wife, she was my uh, friend at the time and she was helping me uh, recover as well. And so I had all these people that were very supportive. The unfortunate thing is I was living with a meth addict. So it was always available. And I, and I say that I never liked meth. Never. From the moment I tried it to the moment I got off it, never once enjoyed it, but I wanted it. It's like, I, I remember there was nights where, you know, you're just up for day, for nights. Right. And I, I'd, I'd be up all night and I'm just sitting there and I'd be like drawing or be trying to do something. I'd be playing my guitar or whatever. And the nights would go so long. Like there was, there was nights where it felt like days, you know, and weeks felt like months because I was just up. And I just remember thinking like, this sucks. Like, I don't want this. I just, I just want to sleep. I just want to eat. I just want to whatever. And I, I remember the only thing I could hold down was like chocolate milk and like eating a banana and my teeth hurt. And I was just, I just felt like shit. Yet when it was offered to me again, I was like, oh yeah, of course. And so it was like part of that motivation to get off was knowing how shitty I felt. I was like, I don't like this. I don't like this at all, but I needed the help. And thankfully I did have it. Yeah, so your story definitely it's it's the anomaly in the sense that you were making bad decisions but at the end of the day you still had those bumpers of oh, yeah. whether you know your mom sounds like she did the best job she could but she was always kind of that baseline of hey you're being a knucklehead if you keep going down this road granted i can't be out there with you 24 hours a day and make you not yeah. do it but that's what you're you know you're going to oh, yeah. get having those friends of like hey don't smoke it's it's bad for you as opposed yeah. to yeah just have another cigarette yeah exactly you know yeah and there and there were bad influences in other ways cuz we were you know stealing stuff and doing whatever else but and that's why i <laughs> laugh about it cuz there were certain things that i was like we could do this together but we can't do this <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's funny but and i you know i know we'll laugh about it now but at the time it was like i just remember in my mind i was thinking this is this is nuts so Marine Corps signed up, went straight out of high school. <clears throat> yeah. So straight out of high school, it was like I graduated. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was actually supposed to leave like immediately after graduation, broke my arm skateboarding. Recruiter was pissed off about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, Hey, sorry, I broke my arm, waited the six weeks, went to boot camp. And when I said I changed my whole mentality and I felt just driven and just, um, you know, just totally different. I felt like a whole new person. And so from that moment on, I was like, Whatever I do, I want to be the best at it. Just like how when I was in a band, I wanted to be the best and I wanted to be recognized. And I loved when I was on stage and I was playing and people were singing the songs that I wrote. And I was like, this is awesome. This is such a good feeling, like that validation, right? And then when I started receiving that in the Marine Corps, like in boot camp and like from day three, I was the guide and which is like, you know, you're the senior guy in your uh, platoon and, you know, graduated as the series honor man, graduated the top of my class physically. And then every school I went to after that was either the top of my class or I was like the gung ho or, or the, the top physical shape or whatever. And I just was striving for that. I was like, next thing, next best thing. I want to be the best because I saw the reward that came from it. And 
and it was like early on when people would, you know, they'd go out and they'd go drink and they'd go out and they'd go do this, you know, and they'd blow their paychecks, whatever. I was in my barracks room and I was doing, you know, my, they call them MCIs, like Marine Corps Institute. And there's things that you have to do in order to promote. And I was doing that early on things that normally people didn't do for a couple of years. I did them within the first couple of months and I got promoted fast. And I remember realizing like people, there's some people that are stoked for you and then your peers are not. They're like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Like, I don't get it. And I'm like, well, if you would have done what I did, then it would have happened. Right. And, and, uh, and so I realized like I could do this or I could do that. And the, the, if I make good choices, then there's rewards for it. And the ones that weren't stoked for you, obviously were the ones that weren't willing to put in the work themselves. Yeah. You know, it, it's a, it's a jealousy thing type deal, but listening to your story, what's also interesting too, is by the time you went into the Marine Corps in a weird way, you were probably experience wise much older than most of the guys you're in there with. Oh, and you'd yeah. already had your life of drinking and partying where for a lot of them, that was their kickoff to it. It, it absolutely. And I joke, and my wife and I joke around about it because we say, we don't, we hope, you know, um, I hope I don't have any like long-term liver damage like <laughs> later on or whatever, but, but I was drunk every day from the moment I woke up, I was drinking vodka and, and Dr. Pepper. And then I would Unique go combination. Yeah, exactly. So I drink, well, it's cause my, so my uncle drank and my uncle's like, I need my doctor, Dr. Pep and vodka. And he, every day. And it, was, and it was like crappy vodka too. It was like the <laughs> 99 cent one. And so we'd both drink that. And it was a big old seven 11 cup. We'd be drinking that and doing lines of Coke going into school. And he's like, all right, see you later. You know, and then going to school and then I, would you know, do meth at school. And there, I mean, it was like, we were just in the cesspool of like just bad behavior where we were just passing, like we would pass notes in class and we would take like a rock of meth and we would fold it up in a paper and crush it. And then we'd pass it to, you know, to one of our buddies or whatever. And then they'd take it and then go to the bathroom, like snort a line of meth and then come back. And then we knew if someone did, cause they'd be coming back and be like sniffing and you know, you get the drips and all that. And you're like, all right, you know, and you're like encouraging that you're like a bunch of idiots. But um, so I experienced all this craziness. And the other thing I felt like I experienced was someone yelling at you. I was used to someone yelling at me and saying I was a piece of shit. And I was used to someone, you know, in my face and telling me that I was, you know, never going to make it or whatever else. And, and so when, when boot camp, Joe started yelling at me, I'm like, all right, like whatever, you know, this is normal. So I was just like confident and just doing my thing. And, and because I had risen through a lot of that, I went through that stress inoculation as a kid. It just felt like, um, like even the neglect, like being, being a young boy and being alone and being afraid and all that. It's like, I went through that. And so I knew it was like, and so Sears school was like, I've been alone a lot. I've, I've done this before and I could, I could be out on my own and make decisions on my own. I know how to, you know, make my own food. <laughs> I know how to do all this stuff. So it was like, it became easy. And so in a way going through that adversity really kind of helped me a lot. When you were heading in at that point in time, were you thinking a career? Were you thinking just one enlistment and then do something different? I honestly, I didn't even know. I just, I, I was just focused on, all right, let's just get in the Marine Corps. Let's travel the world. And that led me, you know, immediately going to Iraq, right? <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is great. And after Iraq, I, I got married uh, to, you know, one of my best friends that she helped me, you know, with the addiction and all that. And so 
got married and everyone told me, do not get married right away. You know, and I, so I was like, okay, I won't get married before I go to Iraq. I'll get married <laughs> when I get back, you know, to see if she's, you know, faithful and all that. And so we did, you know, and then deployed again, had our first kid while I was on deployment and just, I just saw life change and it was just, it was just so good. And so I was like, well, the Marine Corps is taking care of me. I'm doing well. I'm getting rewarded for the things I'm doing. What's the next best thing? And it was like special operations. I want to do that. I want to be the best. The unfortunate thing is because I was starting to grow the family, you know, my wife's like, I don't know, is this the best choice? Right. I hardly see you anyways. Now you're going to go to the special operations community where you're going to be gone even more. And the way I justified it was, well, remember how, when I was on deployment or remember when I'm training or doing this, there's always those like knuckleheads that are, that could just get you hurt or just, you know, or get you killed. Right. I was like, in the special operations community, we don't have any of those, right? Or so I thought, <laughs> but, but you have less of them, right? And I was like, and we're better trained, we're better equipped, you know? And she's like, yeah, but the mission's more dangerous. I'm like, yeah, but you know, <laughs> it'll, it'll be better. And, and, and to be honest, it, it, to me, it is, um, it is a lot better. I, I, I loved being part of the soft community, the special operations forces community, because the mentality was everyone there wanted to win and everyone there was driven just like I was. So before where I was like the top of my class and I was like the top 10% of everything I did. Now I was like in the middle, often even below average, like there was some studs and I got there and I was like, Oh man, these are some like top performers, but that's exactly where I needed to be. I needed to be somewhere that was continuously driving me to be better. And so I looked up to all these people, all my peers, and we were just constantly like healthy competition with one another to outshoot each other, to outperform each other, to out, you know, and we were people, almost every soft operator was going through college too. And so I was like, I, I'm going to get my degree also. And so it just led me to just be better. You hit a great point. Yes, the the environment that you operated in was much more dangerous. And anybody who's been in that realm or from the law enforcement side, a tactical team side, it is more dangerous. But at the same token, it, it almost, the danger almost gets reduced a little bit when you've got 12 to 14 guys who all are focused on one mission. Yeah. And you know, hey, if this is my corner, I don't need to look behind my back because he's got his corner. Exactly. So it is, it, in a weird way, it is safer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was like, and I finally found a group of people that were just like me, I guess, because a, a lot of the soft community, they're misfits also. A bunch of ex-drug addicts <laughs> yeah. and alcoholics who wanted to play punk rock music. Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. And so I was really surprised. There were some like ex, you know, gang members. And there were people that were just had these crazy struggles. And, and my wife and all the wives, they got really close because we were always gone. So they had to get close. And all the wives were like, all of our husbands have daddy issues, right? And they would all just, you know, make fun of us because they're like, every single one of you is like, oh, dad, you know? <laughs> and you're like, you guys act all hard, but deep down, you're like, I wish my dad loved me. <laughs> so at some point in time, you crossed that bridge and we're going to make a career out of it. Yeah, so so I, I crossed that bridge once I, I joined uh, SOF, which was at my five-year mark. And once I did that, I was like, this is it. I'm going to make this a career because I love what I'm doing. I love the people I'm around. I love the mission that we're doing. It was like when I was in Iraq and, and then when, even on that, well, I went on a, um, a deployment to Africa after Iraq and we did some really rad stuff there too, but it wasn't like how the missions were in soft where I felt like 
what I'm doing is make, I could see the difference being made, right? The other things is maybe there was a difference being made, but I didn't see it. It was like, you just do your daily operations. And then, you know, they tell you like, yeah, you know, thank you troop. You know, thank you for what you're doing. You're like, I hope I'm doing good. Right. But in the soft community, I felt like what I was doing was like really mattered. Right. And I could see the difference being made. So I didn't want to leave that. And plus, where else could you get paid to like jump out of airplanes and shoot guns all the time and just hang out with some badass dudes and really just have a lot of fun. Right. And I'm like, I'm getting paid for this. Like, of course I don't want to leave. Right. And I'm best physical shape of my life. And then what ended up cutting that career short, cause I got out at 15 and a half years. What cut that career short of 20 was my wife, uh, kidney failure runs in her family. And oh, I didn't, wow. and I didn't think it was going to affect her because it was affecting all the males. Like her grand, her grandpa died of it. Her uncle got it. Her dad got it. And he ended up passing away from it as well after two transplants. And I just remember getting that call or I called home and I was, I was in Yemen at the time. And I remember my wife, you know, she's like, I got to go in for this kidney biopsy. They got to check my kidney. And I was like, okay, well, she's like, my GFR levels are really low. They're at like 50%, which is, you know, pretty low. Right. But then they dropped to 30%. And so just, she just kept dropping her, her kidney function. And I just remember the command, you know, my team was like, go home, go home from deployment. Um, and then you could go for, you know, her biopsy or whatever. And then, and then you could come back if you need to. Right. And I ended up coming back because I wanted to be with the team. But I remember after I came home and I was, I was with her for that time and I had to make that decision. I was like, I need to be home. I can't I, like, <laughs> and what really got me too was seeing my, my daughter, cause I surprised him when I came home. I, I didn't tell the kids. And my daughter answered the door and saw me, wasn't expecting to see me for a couple more months. And she just broke down in tears. And then my other kids came running up to me. And I was like, I don't want to have to do this again, but I'm going to have to, cause I'm going back and I'm going to have to do it again. But <clears throat> I just remember thinking, you know, I could either choose to be selfish and be, it's weird how saying that's choosing to be selfish because I'm doing a very unselfish thing by serving my country. Yet I was only home two months out of every year and I'm being selfish to my family in a way. Right. And so I was very conflicted with that, doing the most badass job I could do, having the time of my life. Yet my wife's back home raising four kids on her own. You know, she's doing a lot of, in fact, there's a lot of hard work that she's doing that I wasn't, I could say, like, if I were to trade jobs, she'd do that better than me. Right. And, and so um, I said, I, I, I want to stay home. And so I told my command and I wasn't going to get retirement. It was like, well, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out, right? And so I was You like, told your command you wanted out. Yeah, it's because they were expecting me to re-enlist. I remember the first sergeants and sergeant major were like, okay, like, you know, we're, we're expecting your your realm, your re, you know, re-enlistment and whatever, but I can't remember what it stands for, but they're like, we're expecting that paperwork in. I was like, I'm not, not re-enlisting. And, and in fact, I started to get this, um, I started to have like bad feelings towards the Marine Corps because I started thinking about all the times where I wanted to be home and they, and they were like, no. And all the things, the times where I, I would say we should do this and, and we should do that. And this would be a safer option for our team. And this would be the more effective route. And they're like, no, and there was times on deployment where I felt like just a number. It was during that deployment where it, it was like, you know, we knew that the Intel on the ground was saying one thing, 
and we're like, hey, this is this is not a good idea to do this. And they're like, we don't care. You're doing it anyways. And so, and I started thinking about my family. I was like, I could get killed out here and they don't care. I'm just a number. And I just want to be home with my family now. And I never had those thoughts before until that deployment. <laughs> before I was just like, I'm going to live forever, right? <laughs> you stay because you're dumb. You're just young and dumb. You think you're going to live forever and you're doing this dangerous stuff. And you never, it's that false sense of security that like tomorrow's guaranteed. And even though, we've had friends I've gotten killed, even in training. Like we've had friends, seven Marines, seven guys I knew. And one of them in particular with my old team leader, Stanford Shaw, he, he died in a helicopter crash in training. And I remember thinking like that could be any one of us, but I never thought about it when I was on the, you know, doing that stuff. Right. But until that moment, after I realized, you know, what my wife was going through and my kids and how they needed me there, that's when my mentality started changing. And I started, I started just kind of spiraling into this depression because once I got back, I was like, the command doesn't care about me. The, um, everything I did didn't matter. And, you know, cause and then I started, cause I was seeing, you know, I was like, I could see the difference. Right. And I see the work that I'm doing, but yet they were going to end that mission there. So all the stuff that we did was just going to fall to crap again. Right. And so I was like, well, that didn't matter. And he's like, I wasted all this time and wasted all these years with my kids and they never saw me and I don't even know who they are. And I would come home and my son would hide from me and hide behind my wife because he didn't want anything to do with me. He didn't even know me. You were a total stranger to him. <clears throat> exactly. And then when I did try to get to know him, it was like, oh, this man, this one hurt. I, I was like, I want to get to know Oakley. I want to get to know him. Let's go out for ice cream. You know, father and son, let's go. We went out, I took him out, we got ice cream and there was a, 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 a well, or not a well, but like a uh, fountain. Right. And you're like, oh, you know, throw a penny in there and make a wish. Right. So I was like, hey, let's make a wish. You know, and I threw a penny in there. I'm like, here, take it. And he takes it, throws it in. And I'm like, well, what'd you wish for? And he's like, I wish I had a new dad. And I was just like, what? And he's like, yeah, I wish I had a new dad. And I, I, I remember at the time I wasn't sad. I was angry. And because I was like, it's not in the right frame of mind. I just got back from deployment. And I was like, you little shit. I was yelling at him and I was like, I just got you ice cream. Like that, like that made up for all the years I was gone. <laughs> right. right. Like I just got you chocolate chip ice cream. Like <laughs> you ungrateful thing, you know? And so I was just so mad and I, you know, get in the car and I drove home and I was pissed and I was just, you know, and I told my wife, I was like, you know, babe, you know, this is what he said and whatever. And I, I just, I was just angry. I would snap at everybody and I was just going through this just rough time where I was just like, and then after I do that, I'd feel the remorse because I could, and I'd see the, I'd see the pain in their faces when I'd act that way. And so I'm like, I'm a piece of shit, dad. I'm just like my dad. I was, even though, you know, I left for this good purpose, I still wasn't there. And so I was beating myself up and I was starting to feel like maybe they'd be better off without me. You know, maybe my wife needs someone there that could take care of her and take care of her needs and take care of my kids the way they deserve it. Cause I'm not that guy. Right. And so I was having all these suicidal thoughts and, and what's crazy. It's like my wife and kids needed me the most. Yeah. I was thinking in my mind, like they don't need me. They need someone else. Right. And I, I remember someone telling me, and I can't even remember who it was. And that's, it's sad because it's, I really liked what they said, even though it didn't sound good at the time, but they said, they're like, you're right. They do need someone else. And I was like, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. And he's like, but the good news is you could be that person. 
you could change. You don't have to be the same person you are today. You could be that someone else. You could change. And then it was like, it was like, oh, duh. Like I've been through all this crap. I rose above all this stuff. Why can't I rise above this? Right. And so, you know, went through therapy. I went through six months of intensive outpatient program. And that, that kind of like halted my exit from the military. I was, I was on my way out and they were like, he's going through all this crap. Let's, let's pause it. Let's get him on a, um, on an extension so he could go through this therapy, went through it. And I was, I was, and I felt like I didn't belong there. I was like, you know, there's all these people in there that I felt like really belong there. And I'm just like in there, like, ah, I'm just angry. <laughs> I'm just, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I'm just this operator. And I just remember just feeling so stupid, you know, being there, like talk about my feelings. I never did. But then I realized that the more I started talking about it, the more I started talking about my experiences in the military and before the military, it's like I started just all that weight just came off and I started feeling better and I started feeling that drive again to do better and to be better for my family. Do you still go to counseling today? No, I, I, I don't go to counseling today. Um, and I actually, I feel like my therapy today is helping other people. And so it, it's like every time I, every time I'm telling someone a piece of advice, it's like I'm telling it to myself as well. And I, I really, I heard something, um, two days ago and it was by, oh, I'm going to put his name. It was like Erwin McManus or something like that. And he said, he said, I, I stopped listening to myself and I started talking to myself and meaning like your negative thoughts are constantly telling you like, you're not good enough. You're not whatever. But if you just tell yourself like, no, I am good enough. Then it's like, just, you have the power in your mind to, to change the way you think yet you listen to those negative thoughts, right? Those thoughts are in your head and you're the one that's, that's, you know, stirring them around. Right. And just like when I was a kid and I was an adolescent, I was listening to those people telling me, you're never going to be anything. You're never going to whatever. Yeah. I still was trying to prove myself. And then I joined the Marine Corps and I was constantly trying to prove myself to be better and be a better person. Why couldn't I do it now? And so I started telling myself like <laughs> I could do this. So you were active <laughs> from what years to what year? From 2005 to 2021. And getting ready for that transition out, what were you thinking was going to be your after military career life? Yeah. So I only focused on the hard skills. So I was like, okay, I'm good. You know, I was a breacher and, you know, I was, you know, I rigged helicopters. I was, you know, did all, did all these, did all these hard skills, like, you know, tactics and all this stuff. And that's all I was thinking about. I was like, well, so I got to join some three letter agency or I got to join law enforcement or border patrol or something like that. And because I was like, I'll be a great asset to them, right? Maybe I could join SWAT. And that's what I was hoping to do. I, you know, applied for LAPD. And then because I was like, maybe I'll move back to LA. And then, um, and then I applied for Border Patrol. And I got hired by Border Patrol. Got denied by LAPD. <laughs> 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 and the reason why, and it's funny, because the reason why LAPD denied me is because I was, I was, I was very honest. Um, <laughs> I, cause they're, you know, you, you apply, you know, for the, as Can I have a fourth sheet for all the yeah, drugs. And yeah, exactly. So they're like, Oh, what drugs have you done? You know, ever in your life. And I'm like, Oh, this is what I've did. And they're like, have you ever did, committed any crimes? I'm like, Oh, let me tell you what I did. And so I like just laid it out there and just told them everything. And then they're like, yeah, hell no. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and you and, understand this is a law enforcement agency, right? <laughs> yeah. But and in my mind, I was like, well, maybe they'll see, you know, like all the bad stuff I did and then they'll see all the good stuff that happened afterwards. And maybe they'll say, you know, hey, he's good. But 
but Border Patrol was like, ah, well, I think we need some folks. We'll take it. We'll take anybody, you know, but, um, uh, what ended up happening is they gave me a class date for Border Patrol. And right when I got that class date, some random, random Marine hit me up on LinkedIn and was like, Hey, you don't know me. You know, I don't know you, but I just see what you're doing. Cause I was putting out some positive stuff for everybody, like just encouraging people that were like, cause I was going through therapy and I was like, Hey, this is what I'm learning. And that's one thing I did as I it never took what I learned. And then just was like, cool. I learned this. I always took what I learned. And I was like, how can I help other people that are going through the same thing I'm going through? And so I was putting it out there, putting everything I was learning out there as I was going through it. And I remember he's like, there's this program I'm going through at USC. Um, and it, it's an amazing program. You, you have your bachelor's already. So it's a master's program in business and it's specifically designed for veterans and they have entrepreneurship in mind and they're just, very, it, you just got to check it out. And the way he was pitching it, I was like, dude, this dude works for USC. Like, <laughs> you know? And so I was like, what's the catch? Like, do they get How much like, do I have to pay you? <laughs> yeah. So I thought they got like recruitment points or something, you know, for everybody that they bring in. So I'm like, okay, whatever, dude. But eventually he talked me into going to, um, to sit in on a class as like a, you know, just a, a guest. Right. So I'm sitting there and I'm seeing everybody in the room and I'm seeing how the class is. And it was awesome. It was like being around just a bunch of vets, but in a, in a business school setting and they were just learning and having fun. And the, the professors are really cool. And I was like, this is cool. I could go to a school like this. And USC is like a dream school. And I was always a piece of crap kid and never thought in a million years I'd go to USC. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll have this opportunity. And so I, I told Border Patrol, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go get my master's. Could I um, extend my date out? And they're like, yeah, you, you could have it for, I forgot, like two years or something like that, three years maybe. Um, they said, as long as the hiring process doesn't change, your application's still good. But at this point, you've already officially discharged from the Marine Corps. <clears throat> um, no, at this point, I was still I was still in, but I was going through that that therapy program. So I told my command, I said, "Hey, there's just there's this thing starting in the fall, and I want to I want to go to it." Um, but because I'm not on a team anymore, team anymore. So what they did is, as soon as you're done with a team, you either have to you know go to the the training cell to train folks, or, or you go to become a, you know uh, an instructor at the schoolhouse. And, um, but because I was so close to getting out, it was like, I, they kept extending me every couple months. Right. So they thought I was getting out in a couple months. So I was like, Hey, I'm, could I go to the school? I'm, I'm going to get out anyways. and It'll be done during that time. Well, I, I didn't realize that I'd keep getting extended because my, my retirement package just wasn't going through because COVID had ended up happening. And then it was just like pushing all this stuff right to the right. And so, um, I, it was awesome. Like my last year of my time in the Marine Corps, I went to USC as, as a master's student and was getting paid by the Marine Corps to go to school, which is amazing. And most, I'd say no one has that opportunity, but because I, I felt like my command um, in the special operations community, they were just, that was a point where they looked out for me. They're like, we want to see you succeed on the outside. We'll let you go do this program. And it was amazing. And while I was at that program, it allowed me to, learn all these new skills, learn about entrepreneurship. And it drove me to say, you know what? I don't want to work for anybody else. I want to do my own thing. So it's only a one-year program. Yeah. And that's, what's amazing about it. It's a, it's a program and, and you don't have to be soft. You don't have to be, you could be any, um, you could be a veteran or you could be active duty reservist. Uh, as long as you have a bachelor's degree and you meet the qualifications for USC. So they're, they really are looking for people that, um, are driven right? Or purpose-driven 
that want to use this degree to make a meaningful difference, right? And they're looking for people that have proven themselves in their in their undergrad that that they could comprehend these business um, these things these these things that they're teaching you, right? And so uh, I think minimum GPA is like three point five or something like that. But thankfully, I had a th- uh, three point eight nine coming out of um, my undergrad. You also were. Um, or went through the honor foundation program, correct? Yeah. And so, and that was like a huge, huge impact on what I was doing. So that was like, right as I was getting ready to apply for USC and the honor foundation was like a godsend also, man, it was so, and that, and that's kind of where like my therapy started. Um, because I was, I was in this room with all these other, uh, soft operators. I had like Navy SEALs, majority of them, some, you know, more other MARSOC guys and everything else. And day two, this guest speaker comes and name's Joe Sweeney. Right. And he's like, make someday be today. And, you know, like do, do all this stuff. And he's given this motivation, whatever, but he was talking about this adversity and all these regrets and how, you know, you don't want to wait on them, you know, and at the end of your life, you're going to look back and all this, but I can't remember what, where it happened or like what he said, but he was like talking about like a person and he's like, think of that person in your life and whatever else in that regret you have and whatever. And I was thinking about my dad and I was thinking about how I hadn't connected with him for years. And even though like every once in a while I'd see him or I'd take the kids to see him for Christmas, it's like, we didn't, like we didn't connect. Right. And I held all that bitterness. But then once he said that, like make someday be today, I was thinking about my dad on his deathbed and I was thinking about all the regret I was thinking about what I would say at his funeral. And I was like, I would just be bawling and just saying like, how like, ah, I just ruined it. You're right. And that's when I just was tearing up. And then I had to stand up because everyone had to stand up and say something. I forgot what we had to say. I don't even remember, but I remember I was just like, like I couldn't even say it. And I, I just looked like an idiot. And I remember thinking like, I'm looking like a fool in front of all these, <laughs> all these others like seals and Marsoc guys. And, and they're just looking at me like, dude, the question was just about <laughs> whatever. And you're crying, you know? And so that kind of kicked off the therapy. Cause one of the, one of the guys that runs a program, uh, served with me, he deployed with me and, and his name's Mike Halterman. He's a, a, a former Raider and, you know, he works down the honor foundation. He, t- he pulled me aside and he's like, Hey man, I want you to go seek help to go to therapy because clearly like, He's like, I went through this stuff and I was trying to act like I was too tough to ask for help. He's like, go dude, it'll help you. And so that's what kicked that off. But the honor foundation, yeah, 16 weeks of like discovering who you are as a person and then really just teaching you how to talk to people in the business world, change your lingo. So you're not just using military jargon all the time. And, you know, and just to, just to be a a more, you know, noticeable candidate when you're applying for jobs out there in the real world, because in the, the conventional force, they, here's like three days of classes, how, how to write a resume. You know, they maybe do like one scenario for an interview and then they're like, all right, you're ready. That's tap, right? <clears throat> yes. And, and it's, I, I know they mean well, and because they have so many people, they have to get through this. They can only do so much. But for us, we were fortunate enough. We had this tailored 16-week program. You know, we're coddled in the soft community. We're coddled. <laughs> we got a 16-week program that helps us. And, and that really helped me discover who I was. The first phase is just the you phase. And you dig deep in those old stories about you from the past and what the accomplishments and the failures you did, not just in the military, but before that, outside of it. And I started writing these things down. I was journaling. And that's when it was just like, 
it really helped because I was going through two different therapies at the same time. I was going through Honor Foundation and then I was going through my intensive outpatient program. And the Honor Foundation is a civilian nonprofit group, correct? correct. It's not directly affiliated <clears throat> with the military. Yeah, it's not it's not affiliated with SOCOM or anything, but the Navy SEAL Foundation is one of their biggest donors and uh, I think Wounded Warrior now as well. But um, yeah, they're a civilian nonprofit and they do amazing things, just connecting people with the business world, right? And so... Um, and, and it's not like, it's not like they just do that for those 16 weeks and they're like, all right, cool. You're done. And, you know, see you later. It's the, their mission is like to serve others with honor for life. So even to this day, there's things that, uh, you know, um, opportunities and things, abilities to, to go do stuff with the honor foundation that, um, that I'm just so grateful I have the opportunity to, to have now. Did you have to seek it out or did they come to you when they saw that you were transitioning out? It's still, it's surprising. I mean, they've, they've helped probably over a thousand plus operators now, but at the time it was still fairly new. I think I was like class 22, I think. Ooh, I can't even remember now. But at the time it was still like unknown. Like there was a lot of like operators that were like, what the hell's the Honor Foundation, right? Now it's still pretty well known. I think, you know, they try to, advertise it out. But at the time I had no idea what it was. I only knew because I had heard of another operator that was transitioning and he's like, he was wearing a suit and he had this pin. It was like the honor foundation. And, and I'm like, is this some like secret society <laughs> that I want to be a part of? I was like, I want to be part of the honor foundation. You know? <laughs> and they were calling themselves fellows. Like, yeah, we're fellows with the honor foundation. So I'm like, Oh, I want to be that. that. Fancy. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, sign me up. You know, I was like, do I have to know his handshake or something? But <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so you, get out, you get through USC's MBA program and you decide I'm going to be a business owner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, first I was like, All right, I'm going to be a business owner, but what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I was at that point. I was like, I know I want to do something. I want to impact the world. I was like, but how? Right. And the whole time while I was in the honor foundation, I was trying to, they're like, find a problem, right? Like you start with the problem before you just you can't just come up with solutions if you don't know what problems are. Right. And that's the same thing in the military. You learn that as well too. It's like, if you're going to do mission planning, let's get to the root cause first. So that way you can plan accordingly, like, right. And for, you know, um, the, the design concept of how you plan. And I think Einstein said it too. Like if I had, uh, what is it like 60 minutes to, you know, execute something, I would spend 59 of those minutes, like identifying what the problem is and then one minute solving it, you know? And so, um, I was trying to figure out, I'm like, okay, what are problems in the world? What am I good at? You know, how is this going to fit my lifestyle? Because I knew I, would, I needed to be home with my wife and my kids. So I was like, what can I do that's going to allow me the time and the freedom to be there for my wife and kids while she's dealing with these health issues and having to deal with us needing a transplant and for her kidney and all this. And, you know, and um, now we're like homeschooling because of COVID and all that. So I'm like, I need that time. And, um, but I couldn't come up with anything. I was like, everything's already been done. And I was like, and plus the things that I want to do, I don't just want to sell a product. I want to make a difference. And I, I needed that meaning and purpose. And, and so, um, I, I started skateboarding again. And my, my graduating photo of me from USC is me on a skateboard and I'm doing a trick and I don't even think I landed it for the photo. So <laughs> I'm a total poser for that photo, but, but, <clears throat> but I started skating again. And as I was skating, it just gave me the time to think and reflect. And I started connecting with other people, like other veterans that were skating too. And I was like, I like this a lot. I like just what I'm doing. And I like just that feeling of just 
it gave me that feeling of being an adolescent again, being on a board and, and just going out there and, and at a time when they're like, everyone isolate, you know, it's the pandemic, everyone stay in your home. And I'm like, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to skate. So I was like, you know, going out and doing this and that. I was like, you know what I want to do? I want to get more people out. I want to get more people skating and doing stuff and, and realize like how much of a good therapy it is for, for others. Right. And for other vets. So started this company, started thrashing raid and the whole purpose, I used my personal why and my personal why is to illuminate the hearts of others. So they may rise above barriers. And I got that while I was in the honor foundation and when I was going through the, all that therapy and all that stuff. And I was thinking about who I needed when I was a, a kid, when I was a, an adolescent punk rock kid, who, who did I need? I needed someone to illuminate my heart and, and be just like how my mom was and just encourage me and not tell me you'll never make it. I needed them to say, you can do it and stop listening to all these negative thoughts and pull you out of it and rise above all these barriers you're going through. And I was thinking about that when I was going through my transition and I was having those suicidal thoughts and how I was like, I'm not good enough. And all these things I've done, it didn't matter. It's like, it did matter. And you are good enough. You can rise above this. Who you were yesterday doesn't have to be who you are today or who you're going to be tomorrow. You could change at any time. And so I was like, I could use skateboarding as the tool and then help that bring people together and get them outside again, get them skating and enjoying the sun and getting vitamin D and getting <laughs> exercise and all the things that surprisingly they don't preach in the media anymore, like to eat healthy and get exercise and get outside and all these things that I feel like would help a lot of people. And so we started, you know, creating this company. And one thing that I wanted to do differently was in the skateboarding world, it's, it's very like, it's very raw and you know, whatever else, but, um, there wasn't a lot of positive messaging coming out, at least from like things I was seeing out there. And I wanted it to be different. I wanted to put out like just positive message because all this negativity was happening in the world with COVID and everything else. So I started creating, you know, just content and stuff and just telling people to just stay positive, be positive, like get out. Like, and when I'd ask a question, I'd say like, what's something positive happening in your life right now with all this negativity, like name something positive. What's, what are your goals? What are what's driving you and all this stuff. And so it became more of just skateboarding and people, we gained this huge following on social media in like less than a year. And people were like, who the hell are these guys? Like they're just, they're just like growing. And, and, and I was even surprised cause I thought this was just kind of, kind of like be the slow roll and where I thought I'd be five years ago or five years from now is where I am today with this company. So did you just basically put out on social media, Hey, we're going to be skating at location X this <clears throat> Saturday. Yeah. And I, I would do that. And then I said, well, let's start hosting events and let's start doing things. And, and with the purpose of let's get, boards in the hands of people who not, can't necessarily afford it. So if people were buying shirts and people were buying stuff online and, and boards and stuff, I was using proceeds from that to give boards away. And so like veterans or kids would come to these events and I would see kids with jacked up board. And I'd be like, here, let's trade it with this board. Right? Like, cause I remember being a kid and being poor and, and not having the money for, for a new board. You know, I got that board from my uncle and I used that thing till it was like thrash. And I was like, I ain't getting, my mom ain't going to buy me a new board. Not thrashed in the right way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so I'd go to these local skate shops and they would give me used boards that were already kind of thrash, but not as thrashed as, as mine. And there'd be boards that people would get a new deck and they'd leave there or their sponsored shop skaters. They'd ride a board and then have some pressure cracks and they'd give it up. And I found out that secret from, I, I can't remember how it came about, but they were like, you could get used boards there. So I'd go and get those. And so I just remember being so stoked on that. 
So I, I was like, well, if I could make some kid's day just super stoked by giving them a brand new board, I know that they would just be filled with so much joy and just remember that, right? And just like how I remembered those feelings. And so I just wanted to, to be that positive light during a time when it was just so negative. So then where did Six Feet Above morph from? So Six Feet Above morphed from, a he's a great friend now. And at the time, he was just a supporter of me. Right. So he's a supporter of the company and he saw what I was doing. He saw the positive message. I was saying, you know, rise above barriers, rise above barriers. And he's like, I struggled with suicide. I attempted to take my life. He was a Marine and right? he was a, a, a light armored reconnaissance Marine and got out and just went down this, that spiral like I did, but he didn't have a lot of people like I, he didn't have the honor foundation. He didn't have all these people to connect with like I did. And he attempted to take his own life. Wife found him on the kitchen floor. And thankfully, I mean, thankfully that she saved him. And unfortunately, him and I are the same in the sense that the VA's answer to, oh, here's the issues you're going with. Oh, you go to therapy, but here's all these pills, right? And so they're feeding both of us this cocktail of like different medication that it's supposed to help you, but it's got all these side effects that are negative as well. And so I ended up, I told, I told the psychiatrist, I was like, I'm not taking these pills. He's like, Oh, you got to take them, whatever. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll take them. So I'd like pick them up from the thing. And I just throw them out. i never took them because I, well, it might've been good or bad. I probably needed a little bit, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there was times where I was, I was taking them. I was, I was just like, just declining. I felt like way worse. So he was going through that same problem where he was getting fed these pills and it was just on this constant decline. And he, he said, skateboarding helped me. I got out there. I started skating. Like, you know, I was watching the content you're doing. I was getting out there on the board. I was connecting with people. He's like, I want that. I want to do that for others, but at no cost to them. I want to get them connected on a board and fly veterans out. And he had this grand vision, like this big thing. And he's like, I know it's going to take years, but like, I think you and I could do it. Right. And so he brought me, he, he started uh, pushing out that narrative on, on social media. He created the platform called six feet above on social media. I think the, the actual, uh, you know, that name was taken on Instagram. So we had to like alter it a little <laughs> bit as the handle, but, and he started pushing out positive messaging saying, shred the trend, shred the trend on veteran suicide by going out and skating. And that's all it was. It was just telling people to go out and skate. And then he would say, no war is fought alone. Meaning like, when you're out, when you're feeling this way, you just feel so alone, even though you're not. And even though people are like, reach out for help if you need it. And people are telling you, we just don't because it's like, I don't want to burden that person. So it's like, you feel a sense of loneliness, right? Because there's that stigma that, you know, you're going to be weak or, you know, whatever. You hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> That's the stigma that is slowly changing, but both in the military and law enforcement community. Yeah. Asking for help does not mean you're weak and asking for help does not mean you're a failure. Yeah. But we haven't always embraced that. Yeah. And I think it sucks because there's like, there's a lot of people that are not okay and it's okay to not be okay. There's a lot of people that are claimed to be not okay. And you see, and then they kind of ruin it ruins that, that for everybody else that's really not okay. And you don't want to be looked at as like, Oh, you're that guy that just is just trying to skate out of 
uh, no pun intended with the <laughs> word, but <laughs> you're just trying to skate out of, of, you know, doing work or skate out of a deployment or out of doing this hard thing that you're supposed to do. Cause you're just, you know, you're just being weak mentally. Right. And even, even those people that I say, like they're, I'm comparing my problems to their problems. So even though I might be able to overcome this adversity in their mind, that might be the hardest thing they've ever been through. So even, even still, that's, that's wrong of me to even say like, oh, those people, right? Because for all I know, that guy's going through the hardest thing in his life. And it might be one of the easiest things that I could get through in, in a second. It's right? all about self-perception. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, we, we can sit here and say, hey, that's no big deal. Mm-hmm. It, it may be no big deal to you. Yeah. To, it, you got to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, he, he started pushing out this messaging and then I was like, you know, when I was in business school, I learned don't wait, just start it. Right. Like the more you try to just analyze and make it perfect, your business plan, it's never going to be exactly how you want it right away. And and if you wait too long, you know, someone could already start doing it. And, and, and either way, if you wait too long and you think your plan is perfect, you start pushing it out there, you're going to hit roadblocks and failures along the way. So you might as well just take the first step and just start doing it anyways. So the goal was, you know, in a few years, let's start doing these retreats and we'll, we'll fly veterans from all over the country out and whatever. And it seemed like this grand scheme that was like, had all these logistical, we had to have a, a property and we had to have like connections with the skateboarding world to like get them connected with the pro skaters. And I'm like, I don't know any pro skaters to you. And he's like, no. And so we're like, okay, well let's figure this out. And then I was like, well, you know what? Let's just say we're going to do it. Let's just be like, we're doing it. And then just put it out there. Like, this is what our, our organization does and see what happens. Right. So we are like, we're connecting and supporting veterans and we're going to do these retreats and whatever else. And all these people are like, that's amazing. How do we support it? And slowly, like, or not slowly, actually like really <laughs> fast. It's like, we started having conversations with people that I never thought I'd have conversations with. Like all these pro skaters were like, that's cool. What you guys are doing. I'm on board. I want to support it. And these skate companies that I thought, you know, like I'm, I thought I was competing with or try, I like admired. I was like, I hope one day my skate company gets like that. Now I'm talking to them and they're like, we want to support six feet above. And you know, Riley and I sometimes will, we'll get a text. We get off the phone with a, a, some pro skater or something. And then we immediately text each other like little girls. And we're like, Oh my gosh, like, I can't believe this. Right. And that, and that's how it started. And, and today we've, we've helped, you know, dozens of veterans out, um, by, by flying them in and, and they go to these retreats and they connect with these pro skaters. We, we take them on these exclusive experiences that they'll, if you were just the average person, you'd never just get invited to go do some of these things. And yet here we are getting invited to go do these things. And then we teach them. It's not just about the skateboarding experience, but it's about the connection with one another and sharing our stories with one another. And we create an environment where people feel comfortable and they feel a sense of belonging. It's not like, I remember going to therapy and sitting across from like some 70 year old dude who's never been in the military, has never experienced what I went through. And he's like, okay, well, here's, you know, tell me how you feel. Tell me how you feel. And then let me write you this prescription for these meds. Right. And so we wanted to create an environment where people could feel comfortable saying exactly how they felt raw and not feel judged and not feel like, you know, they're like they're afraid to, to sound weak or whatever else. Cause all of us, as people start talking, people start like, wow, like 
I'm going through the same thing you're going through. And then I teach the things that I was learning in cognitive behavior therapy and dialectical behavior therapy and, and mindfulness and, and breathing techniques and all these different things that I was taught. Now I'm teaching it to them. And it's like, I knew it was going to make a difference, but I didn't know how much. And, and we started receiving these letters back, like after they'd leave the retreat and we'd get these letters and they're like, this changed my life. This, this retreat, they're like, you know, the skateboarding experiences, that was rad. Meeting Tony Hawk, that was cool. Like all this stuff, they're like, that, that was amazing experience. Like all, almost every single one of them, the, the most memorable moment for them was just connecting and making new, uh, and having a new network where they're like, I don't feel alone anymore. And now I have this better sense of, of getting out there and just rising above it. And, and we stay connected with them. Like, it's not like you go to this retreat and we're like, cool, cool experience. You guys know each other. Now get out of here. Right. We stay connected with them forever. Right. And that's our goal is just to continue to grow this database of veterans and, and just, you know, host awesome events and continue to invite people back and, and to really just watch them grow and, and see them where they came from and just push for them to just become better people and, and to be the person that they're meant to be. That's really cool. Separating the two businesses and, and taking this in the direction of business questions. Mm-hmm. So Thrash and Raid, you, well, Six Feet Above, is that, was that started as a nonprofit? Yeah, so that started as a, as a 501c3 nonprofit. We immediately applied for it and we're like, okay, let's, that'll be the nonprofit. Thrash and Raid, uh, for-profit company, yeah, my wife is like, you operate it like a nonprofit because you <laughs> give all your stuff away. <laughs> but, but it's because I, I, I was focused on the why more than the product. Because the product's cool. I could create products. And if I just wanted to sell products, that's all I'd do. But what I wanted to do is create a company or a brand that really, truly cares about the people that love it. Right? Like, I want to love on the people that follow us. And I, I want to create this, like... And we just created this thing called the Raid Brigade. And it's, um, you know, it's like Thrash and Raid and you're part of the Raid Brigade, kind of like how the Bones Brigade back in the day, right? And so we created the Raid Brigade, but the whole purpose behind it is to create challenges for people to where they go do good stuff in their community. And if you do these good things in your community, we'll give you, you know, discounts or, or tickets to exclusive events, or we'll give you free products based off of, you know, whatever challenges you complete. But the whole purpose was to, get people motivated to go out there and act because there's, <laughs> there's so many people that just imagine a better world, right? They, they see this world in their mind and they're like, I wish the world was like this. The world sucks, but I wish it could be like this. I wish that people could get along. I wish that someone was helping the homeless. I wish that someone was doing this and, and helping these kids. And then they never act on it. They hope someone else is going to do it for them. Right. But like guys like you and I, or, you know, guys like first responders that put their lives on the line every single day and veteran and, and service members that sign the line and say, I'm going to go act and go do it. Know that you can't just wait on someone else to do it because if you just wait on someone else, it's probably not going to happen. So you need to act on it. Evil people don't wait to act on their evil thoughts. They do it. Yet good people wait, hoping that someone, uh, some superhero is going to come and do it rather than being the superhero themselves. And so with, with what we're trying to do is we're trying to inspire people and illuminate the hearts of others so that way they could go and act and do those things and help their community and make a real meaningful difference in people's lives. 
just take that first step. Yeah. So from a business perspective, somebody wanting to start, and I'll I'll call your company a, a skating and apparel company, yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what advice would you give to starting a business? I'd from say, your experience, obviously. Yeah, from my experience is looking at, don't look at what other people are doing. Think about your why and focus on the root cause of why you want to start this business. Because if you're, if you want to start a business to make money, there's plenty of ways to make money, right? And there's plenty of products you could do to just make money. But if that's all you're going to, that's all you care about. Yeah. Your business might slowly grow, but if you focus on like, what's the main purpose, what's driving you to start this business, um, then you're going to see real success. And I know some people are like, well, I don't know why, like, you know, I just, I'm just trying to figure that out. Well, I'd say if you don't know exactly what product you want to sell or you don't know the industry or let's say you do, you need to look at that industry and, and just, I mean, I'd say just go for it. And one of the first steps you could do is just creating, like putting it out there in the world, like how six feet above did, right? Riley's like, we're six feet above and this is what we're going to do, right? And if you just create a handle with whatever business name, you know, that you want to uh, uh, have and, and say like, we're going to do this product. That product might not even exist yet. But if you just put it out there and start gaining that following and, and people are going to start seeing like what you want to put out, then you already have, you've already started pushing the airplane down the runway before it's fully built. And so as, as time goes on, you're going to start learning about the different markets. You're going to start learning about how supply chains work and you're going to start learning all this stuff. Meanwhile, you're putting it out there. Oh, this is what we're doing. This is what it's coming. This and this and this. And you're gaining a following. And so by the time that airplane starts taking off, you've already experienced these failures along the way, rather than waiting till the plane is fully built in the hangar before sending it off. Because that person that's already started and experienced all these failures is going to be way soaring ahead of you than the person that, that waits till it's fully done. Because he's going to come out of the runway and probably, you know, pop tire and fail, right? And I'm not saying if your plan is to build airplanes, that's probably not the best thing to do. You probably should wait till it's fully done in the hangar. So this is a, this might be a terrible Just metaphor. an analogy. Yes, yeah, analogy. Yeah, maybe, a, you know, there's probably a lot of fallacies in those, but... <laughs> What, what obstacles did you have to overcome in starting a business? So for me, I had no idea how supply chain worked, especially with COVID happening. I was like, okay, well, how do I get wood or how do I, because I'm like, I don't know where, like how skateboards are made. I've never made a skateboard in my life. So I'm like, well, there's, there's three things you need to be successful in starting a business, right? You need, need the knowledge on how to do it. Uh, You need the time to do it and you need money. Right? You need the capital. If you don't have one of the three, if you only have one of the three, like let's say you just have all the time, like I did, I'm out of the Marine Corps, now I have all the time. Well, I didn't have the knowledge and I didn't have the money. So I need to find people with those two things, right? Or let's say I have all the money in the world, I'm an investor, but I don't have the time to do it and I don't have the knowledge to do it. I could find two people with the, that time, right? And so I utilize my resources by, by writing down what do I want to do now? Who do I know? What do I know? And then, and then go from there and say, okay, well, if I don't know this, who do I know that knows that, that, that knows that, or what do I know? Or, or, you know, what, who, who would want to be an investor in this and how can I pitch that to them? So that's, if you don't have everything, you could always leverage the, the people, you know, and the connections that you make. And one, one thing that I have found to be so helpful for me is that when I go looking for support, 
I don't go into it with the attitude of what can this person do for me? I go into it with what can I do for them? So if you go into it with what can you do for these, for, for them, then you're more likely to get the support that you need. Right. But if you're constantly just looking like, Hey, this could, person could help me. So let me like exploit that person. Right. And, and you see that a lot. People are always trying to pitch their idea and they're pitching this and this. And you're like, well, what's my return on investment? Right. And it just seems like I'm just helping you. But if you're going in there with, this is how I could, this is how I could help you. And you make it more about them. Uh, and that should be the intention, right? If you're trying to change the world and trying to make it better, you should be trying to find different new ways to serve. Um, you're going to get tenfold in return. And I have with, with just that approach with Thrash and Raid, we've seen it grow and we've seen it expand. And we've seen it because I've gone into everything with a serving attitude. And just, even though we weren't profitable for a long time and because I was just giving everything away <laughs> and I was doing all this stuff, because of that, it's created opportunities that I never thought were possible. And it's created relationships that are like, I have, I have relationships with people now that like, I would die for these people now. And I never knew they existed. And they are like the same like-minded people as I am. And I would, we would have never connected if I never went in with that attitude. This may sound like a loaded question. Could you have succeeded, do you think, without having gone through that MBA program? Yes, absolutely. So <clears throat> that MBA program gave me it gave me more connections, but all the knowledge that I learned, you could, you could YouTube it, right? You could YouTube how to, you know, accounting stuff or marketing stuff, or you don't even have to know any of it. Again, you could, you could find people with that, right? Uh, with MBAs that, you know, and there's so many veterans out there that if you're a veteran or if you're law enforcement that have gotten out and done those things, actually, in fact, a big percentage of my class in that MBA program were, were, um, LA County, uh, sheriff deputies, like a huge chunk of them. So and, the program is not just for military. Well, it, it is, it is just for military, but there were, so there were veterans that join uh, LA County Sheriff, but Got it. I'm not sure if they are going to open it. I, I, I could have sworn they were talking about opening it up to first responders as well. Um, which in fact, six feet above, that's our, that's another one of our goals is to not just have veterans um, come to these retreats, but also law enforcement and other first responders as well. So you kind of segued into it. What are, what are your future goals? Where do, where's Thrash and Raid going? Where's Six Feet Above going? Yeah, so for Thrash and Raid, we just want to continue to just make that, that new, like right now, um, I mean, we're still small business, but we're seeing waves um, unlike most people that start a skateboard company, right? It takes a lot of years for them to be noticed in, in the skate industry. And, and I feel like because of our act of service and what we're doing, we're, we're making um, much bigger ripples in that. And so our goal is to be competing with these top skate companies that everyone knows about and you see them in, in all the different um, skate shops. We want to be in every skate shop across uh, the United States and we want to be the, the prime choice. We have a hashtag, America Skateboard Company. We want to be America Skateboard Company that has the values that most veterans and law enforcement have and have the values that want to serve others and protect others and making a, a meaningful difference right? a positive difference. We want to be that skate company that promotes that and not be looked at as the kid. Like I was where when you think of like the skateboard punk kids, <laughs> you think of the kid that's hopping your fence, that's going to your business. That's like ruining your property. And you're like, I hate those kids. And I hate skateboarders. We want to change that narrative and just be more of like, you know, the, the where you could see, the difference that it's making in people's lives. 
like and for it's funny for a lot of adults for veterans especially in law enforcement like if you told someone you surf you're like yeah i surf you know they're like oh cool that's great but if you're like in your 30s and you're like hey i skateboard you're like why <laughs> like what are you 15 like what's wrong with you right and so um we're trying to like break that stigma as well because and we've gotten people in their 50s to skate for the first time and we've gotten and, and again our retreats too with a lot of bubble wrap and extra, <laughs> extra padding yeah, yeah well not to that extent <laughs> but we we really you know we want to encourage people that you're never too old and and Jay Adams, Jay Boy Adams, who really wasn't a good uh, role model for a lot of people. Um, he was one of the Z boys back in the day, like Dogtown, Lords of Dogtown folks. But he he had this this quote that says, "You don't you don't stop skateboarding because you get old. You get old because you stop skateboarding." And really, skating has kept me young. And I'm not saying I'm like old, but it it's kept me just in that mindset of just being creative and being free and not losing my imagination and thinking about and playing with my kids and introducing skateboarding to my kids. And now we do that together. And it's like, just, it it allowed me to reconnect with them a lot more, especially during that time when I had missed, you know, all that and getting to know them while skateboarding was kind of bridged that gap. Going back to the beginning, have you introduced your kids to music and are they taking to it? Oh man. Yes. And it's, it's really rad because seeing them enjoy a lot of the music that I like. Um, it's, it's stark contrast. Cause when like my dad and my mom and even my uncle and stuff would, I'd hear the music they're listening to. I'm like, this sucks, you know, but now, you know, and that's not like I only listen to punk rock or anything. I listen to all sorts of music, you know, and, and my oldest daughter, she's about to be 13. She's, uh, she's really into like eighties new wave now. And she's starting to play piano and I play guitar. My wife plays drums and now we, we play together, we jam together and, and we were playing the cars the other day and, and, you know, we're like, more than a feeling. And like, you know, it's just, <laughs> and we're playing these songs and she's doing it on the, um, uh, on the keyboard and it's, it's awesome. All of a sudden music that your kids like, mm-hmm. it, you know, you, you can, you may not have liked it when you were a kid or whatever, but it's a total different, it, I use the analogy of going to an amusement park, like a, a or the zoo as yeah. an adult, you're like, God, this is boring seeing it through your kid's eyes makes it completely different. Yeah, it, it does. And, and every single day, and I just want to say, I think I said the wrong lyric when I did that melody. I think it was supposed to be just what I needed, not more than a <laughs> few, <laughs> but, um, but I, it, it is cool because I get to relive a lot of those, those things. Like when I see my son, you know, the joy on his face when I'm playing with him, I'm like, man, I remember just being that happy or at least wishing I was that happy at some point, you know? And, and, and it's just, I get to relive that those moments of my childhood with him, like seeing that that through uh, his eyes, and then even my daughter just he- hearing her play music and and watching her just discover new music and discover new things. And you're like, I remember discovering this band for the first time and how awesome it was. And there's some things I'm like, check this out, and like you're gonna love it. And she's like, Yeah, this sucks. And you're like, No, like. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's other ones that you know when they do catch it and they do like it, you know, it's such a good feeling. Well, very cool. Any last parting words to the veteran community or to anybody looking to start a business or anything? Yeah. I mean, I guess just, you know, who you were yesterday doesn't have to be who you are today. And as long as you're like making one step further, um, you know, one step ahead, it could be the smallest step, but like, let's say you haven't worked out in months or years. If you get up, tomorrow and you work out 
for one minute and you just do like one push up, that's one more push up that you did that you didn't do the day before, you know, or it, it, whatever direction you want to take. If you just do um, just one small step, one big or one small bite, everyone wants to just do that big bite and they just want to have their business start now and they want to be successful now. And that's kind of a problem with our, our American microwave generation where you got to think more like a crock pot where you just got to slow cook it. It's going to take some time. You got to be patient, but the reward is going to be there and, and it might come faster than, you know, um, but yeah, just don't give up, you know, it's going to be a slow roll. And if anyone needs any support, you could reach out to me at any time on, on Instagram, um, or, um, you know, my email or whatever, and I'd be happy to help you. Well, you're still in my next line. So how can people connect, oh. <laughs> connect with you? Yeah. So, um, uh, at, and that's six S I X underscore F T underscore above. And that's, uh, that's our Instagram handle for our nonprofit. And then thrash and raid is thrash underscore N underscore raid. And then, or you could, uh, email me at Benji. It's B E N J I E at six feet above dot, uh, org. And both of those also have websites, correct? Correct. So sixfeetabove.org and then thrashandraid.com. I appreciate your time, sir. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.